Welcome to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. This is a podcast about the business of marketing and the entrepreneurial mindset. So join me as I talk to leading thinkers, leading marketers, and senior executives to discover how they create value, capture markets, influence audiences, and drive business success. This is Unicorny, and I'm your host, Dom Hawes. This is an episode about the fundamentals of marketing and beating brand enemies. If you're looking for clarity of purpose in the year ahead, if you're trying to turbocharge your effectiveness, if you're building the case for budget, well, this is the show for you. Now, since starting this podcast, we have aired 37 episodes. Those episodes contain over 250,000 words, which in 10 point times New Roman runs to around 500 pages. That would take the average person over 16 hours to read or 30 hours to listen to. That same output took us over 400 hours to produce. Over that time, and out of all the podcasts we've recorded, this one is special. That's not to say, of course, that the rest haven't also been special because there's a thing that, as we get better at making shows, well, we kind of enjoy them more. But believe me, this one is really super special. I've met some amazing guests in this studio, many of whom are now firm business buddies. I've connected directly with many listeners just like you through LinkedIn too. And I chat to them on that channel. And I've met some amazing fellow podcast creators too. But sometimes, sometimes you meet someone who just blows you away. Someone who you make an instant connection with. Someone who you feel like you've kind of met before. And such a person is the extraordinarily articulate and on it marketer that is Rachel Fairley. Now, before we record any episode, we meet the guests online for a quick 20-minute introduction to the show and just to have a general catch-up. Now, when we met Rachel, well, we had to call an end to the call at 57 minutes and 48 seconds. But God, we could have gone on. She is amazing. Let me tell you a little bit more about Rachel. Hailing from Edinburgh, Rachel developed an interest in business and marketing from a very young age. Right after university, she found herself in Brussels, where, as she puts it, she... Got a job working for a general council, mainly because I spoke English and could type at least 10 words a minute. And um, he was selling the business. He was involved in selling the business. And so he asked me to help him work that through with his team. And that's when I heard this thing called brand, which had a value on the balance sheet and started making marketeers in the business and thought to myself, oh, I want to do that. That's how I got into it. Given that her starting point was so commercial, it's no surprise to find how overtly commercial Rachel is in her outlook. And when I tell you that she has worked on well over 30 business repositioning projects, you will understand where her fluency in the business of marketing comes from. And given how simply and powerfully Rachel explains things, I thought a good place to start today might be to explain as simply as possible what marketing should be if you strip away all the noise, all of the buzzwords, and all of the faddiness. Rachel, over to you. Really, all it is about is that the customer has a need and you are there to solve it for them. And you have to be in their mind. You have to have that mental availability and be easy to mind when they're in a buying situation. And it's too late to show up at the altar and offer to marry them, right? I mean, it's just too late. So you have to be in, in their life 
even when they're not shopping. And then once they are ready to buy, you have to be very easy and straightforward to buy. So how easy is it to actually buy your products and services? And then if you don't help that customer use their what they bought to the maximum capability to solve their problems really quickly, (laughs) they will churn. You will not know when they're going to churn, but they will churn. They've already decided because they will feel like they made a bad decision and they wish they hadn't and they're full of regret. And so it's almost like those are three very simple things that you have to do to actually support a customer. If you focus on that, I think everything starts to make much more sense. And I think then the expectations from a CEO, those are the conversations you need to have. What is it that we want to do for these customers? (laughs) You know. That, and that's an excellent executive summary of the whole podcast. Is it? Because we're going we're <laughs> to dive into each of those areas now. Yeah, I wrote some notes from when we last spoke. You alluded to it just now. Too many people are focusing on, because they're looking at attribution models, they're focusing on the last click or the last thing yeah. a, cons- a customer did. They're all right down at the bottom of the funnel. It's like the whole of the sales and marketing department are there together trying to nudge someone over the line and then take credit for it. And that doesn't help the business in the short term or indeed in the long term. You told me when we when we met, um, you said marketing should be a discipline with a methodology that is understood and practiced effectively. Oh my God. I know. This is like my soapbox. <sighs> let's dial up the rant scale and let's get on to where we're going wrong and why that methodology and why the discipline doesn't exist. Well, I don't get it, right? If you're an accountant, you have training that teaches you a methodology and models. Why isn't marketing like that? The last, like, this really is a rant, the last sort of 20-odd years working on repositioning businesses I have either found that people are willing to tell stories or write books or whatever, case studies that are so superficial and so sort of like, look at us, we did brilliantly, or they are case studies in how business decisions were taken wrongly, right? But they don't actually teach you what the methodology is and how to know when things are going to go wrong and how to plan for that eventuality. So... First of all, why isn't that there? Why isn't that a thing that you have to do and you have to be certified in to be a marketeer? The second thing is, I mean, increasingly now, thank goodness for the Marks and the Jennies and the Byrons and, you know, all of those incredible thinkers, Les, and I mean, just brilliant people coming up with really good, quite academic, but also very pragmatic thinking about what it is and why and how you do it. But I don't know how many marketeers really lean into that and actually study it and read it and get to the point where they have understood it and can actually action it. So what you end up with in marketing is you end up with, because I've been in so many businesses now, that it's like they all have different models, they all have different brilliance and awful things, you know. But what I find is that really is a, big barrier to marketing is that different people have different training. Some people have no training at all. Some people have gone from business to business every couple of years and experienced different models and ways of doing it, but but not necessarily had the full life cycle of a company. Um, and then other people have been the same company for years and years, and the politics is more important to them than the, than the marketing. And then there's other things like people almost coming up with a plan and then just dusting it off every year and updating it slightly and just going with it. And I, I think at the heart of this is actually quite a big fear, a big fear of being found out, a big, big fear of not knowing what the right thing to do is. Even the way it's taught in business schools, 
is, you know, MBAs, I mean, I, I looked at doing one years ago and decided not to because I kept finding that they were very single subject specific and that interdisciplinary nature that you need in a business because you're, you're, you're driving, it's a, it's a cockpit, you know, you're, you've, got, you've got to know what all the levers are that you can pull. And they're also very inaccessible in terms of the, the price, right? Yes, Lots of people right. can't afford them. And I don't know whether they actually return, produce a return. I think that marketing ends up, it's a module. And then within brand and repositioning and how you do full funnel marketing and how you create that value exchange, it's almost like a, a section of the module. Yeah. <laughs> so I think CEOs expectations of marketing is not what they should be. I'm not even sure marketing CMOs are always in the frame of mind of what it should be. And so you see this very kind of come in, do something that's quite obvious, which is where, you know, rebranding and visual stuff all comes yep. in because you can repaint the walls, but not actually change the house kind of thing. And I think that that means that you're never really standing on the shoulder of giants in your job because you don't, what you really want to do is nurture that brand for the period that you're there, nurture that yeah. business and then hand it off to someone else. And so I think we need quite a shake-up. What's really interesting about our rant today is that there are two sides. One is we're saying it, it's the CEO's fault because he or she uh, doesn't have high enough expectations of the marketing department and therefore is not giving them scope. At the same time, we've got a, a body of marketers, and there are some brilliant marketers out there we all know, um, and some really, really uh, talented individuals. But there are an awful lot who are also not talented, who are the equivalent of journeymen, who are ticking the boxes, turning up, doing inappropriate, ineffective things. For a long time, I thought that, you know, every business gets the marketing department it deserves, yeah. based on the scope they give it and the people they choose to lead it. And it is the prime value creation engine in any business. It should be at least. If it's not, you're probably working in something low margin or uninteresting. But in a, in a normal business, it should be the value creation engine. And it gets my goat. I, you know, it really irritates me that there doesn't seem to be any kind of structure at all in the way that we're getting our marketing done. I think you're spot on. It's actually quite depressing, isn't it? It is a bit, but we could decide to do something about it. Yeah, we could totally decide to do something about it. I mean, I've told my children if they become marketeers, they're disowned. So, you know, that's a start. <laughs> yeah. That's like you can be a plumber, an electrician, a doctor, like okay. be useful. And they just look at me. You know what's going to happen. So my father said to me, yeah. my father's advice to me was, you can do anything you like, but make sure you're passionate about it. And if you really are passionate about having clean streets, go empty bins, go yeah. sweep the street. He said, if you are really passionate about it, you'll end up owning a company or running a company or building a company that cleans streets. Because if you're really passionate about it, that's what will happen. But you know what happens then, don't you? You end up in marketing anyway. Yeah, you do. It's so true. Your father was right about you, though. Um, cleaning the marketing streets around us. It's a bit of a, um, a sort of dilemma, isn't it? Because... Yeah. I think you have to raise the expectations in order to get marketing to do its job properly. The reason that for me that's really important is then you have to set the expectations for the rest of the C-suite about it. So if marketing is really going to listen and understand the customer, understand the market and create that sort of value exchange that comes from having the right product services and experience, the right pricing, the right way of, of, of being able to service those customers, then the CEO has to get behind the fact that the roadmap needs to serve those, that market, those market needs, not just be what people would like to 
make and sell, right? Yeah. Um, and also the the operating systems, the way the COO runs the business has to actually em- enable all of that um, and remove all the headaches and the difficulty. You know, so many times I speak to people and they're like, yeah, well, I do do the right thing by the customer, but essentially what they have to do is work around the system or, you know, in order to make it happen. And they describe using four pieces of software to get something to happen that you have to use a bug to get. So... And then also the finance, you know, is it a cost or is it an investment? I mean, yeah, I, I think that's hilarious because if you can switch marketing off and it makes no difference to your business, then yeah. game on, switch, switch it, it off. off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I find even the fact that marketing gets a question mark about whether it's a cost or not is extraordinary. Yeah. This is an area I get stuck in quite often. For me, this, is, this feels like an enormous bog. Yeah. that we're just walking into. But it is an important subject because it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. Firstly, it could be a little bit of both. Yeah, And actually, I feel like there needs to be a third category. And I don't know what that is. Well, some of it's a cost. If you're doing direct response or you're doing straight above the line, of course, it's a cost and it goes. that's yeah. what goes on your P&L. But if it's anything else, <clears throat> then it's not going there. But is it an investment? Because as soon as you start talking about investment or return on investment and you go to the rest of the C-suite, they will have other thoughts in their mind about ROI. Yeah, ROI is, in my opinion, more traditionally associated with investing in tangible assets, not intangible assets. Yep. And, and therefore, it's difficult for them to get the concept. Like, How are they going to measure the return on investment and how are they going to attribute that return? It's a difficult thing. Yes, it is. I find it really hard that any business wouldn't understand that it pays to invest in those things that make you memorable, the long-term stuff. I just, I just can't get my head around it. You know, this whole thing about what, what should you measure? It's almost like a red herring because if you know who your buyer is and then you know what you want your buyer to know they can buy from you and that they would like to buy it from you should they come shopping, then that you need to know whether or not that's that's working. And if it's not working, why is it not working? That's perception, right? And then if it is, then it needs to be really easy for them to buy then you need to look at, well, how do they go shopping? What are those, whether it's through a partner or, you know, retail or whether it's on your website or whether it's through an event, whatever that journey is, how easy is it for them to actually find what they're looking for and buy? And you can look at so many different data points, but with that as the exam question, where are people falling off? Where are they disappearing? Where are the leaks, basically? And then... Same thing when you get to contract, like how satisfied are they if it's contract or if it's payment that they got exactly what they wanted for a fair price, that they feel like this is a good deal. And that's the value exchange. And that's the value exchange. And then after that, do they feel that they've got the most from what they bought? If, for example, that's what you want to know, then you can work out what all the leading indicators are to check. You can look at heat maps on web pages. You can look at how many people turn up for events. You can look at whether the pipeline going into the room is different from the pipeline coming out. You can you can find all those different levers, right? But essentially, that's what I want CEOs to start asking CMOs. You know, who's the buyer? What do we want yeah. to sell them? Yeah. <laughs> How are we going to sell it to them? You know, yeah. and ask those questions and then figure out. But ultimately, the only measure is revenue. Just going back to that thing about training, right? If you have to go and teach an accountant trained CFO <laughs> that there's a measure for marketing yeah. that he or she has never heard of and that they can't actually see on a balance sheet, I just think you're sort of 
it's just your noise. You're not valuable to them, right? You're having to teach your own colleagues something yep. that they don't understand and therefore they don't trust. Okay, I'm going to throw something in here. Why Why should we care? I mean, why, why should a CFO need to understand absolutely everything about everything to do with someone else's job? Shouldn't they be trusting their professional colleagues to be doing a proper job? I think that if you're sitting at that leadership table and you don't know how your colleagues think or what they what keeps them awake at night or what they've got their eye on or what they're happy with, yeah. then you're not really that great a colleague. Because the danger is that you end up at the top of your ivory tower and that when that CEO looks out across the table, there's just a bunch of ivory towers sitting Uh, at this table, right? For me, with my teams, I expect them to get on with each other, even if they hate each other. I expect them to get on with each other, care about each other's work, be there for each other, be a sounding board, you know, Uh, figure out how to cover for each other's holidays, you know, just kind of have that feeling of being a team, right? Well, that sort of expectation, why would that dissipate as you get to the C-suite? And the best C-suite teams I've seen are the ones where they'll go, how did it go the other day? You know, you were worrying about that. How did that go? What happened with that? Because they are running a business. They are not running a department. I feel we're talking about value exchange today. And I feel sometimes though that there's an unfair exchange there in that what what marketers, are, I suppose at its simplest level, understanding the customer and creating the appropriate channel to market and the price, all the kind of stuff that we do, a lot of it's fairly simple to explain, I suppose. Yeah. And if our argument here is that we're having to train them in, you know, what other people call vanity metrics, then I think I'm probably with you. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure the level of detail that a CFO or, another, or, or any of the other C-suite would need around a table into the precise details of what's going on in the department like i wouldn't dream of taking a a printout of our for example our analytics our own analytics into a board meeting they're just not interested i see what you mean okay i'm not saying that i'm saying that you should be able to articulate that we want these buyers to buy these things from us our job up front is to make sure that they know that we are a choice in the market and they feel favorably to us and i can tell you that that is correct that is happening I've, uh, there's, if you want to know, there's about 10 different things we yeah, look at to know that. Know. But yeah, that's, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, we can dig into it if you want to. But basically, they know we're in this market. They know we have the relevant things for them and they are favourable towards us. They will look at us when they come shopping. Yeah, It's like, that. there you go. Because otherwise you end up talking about awareness, prompted or unprompted <laughs> awareness. Um, what the relationship between awareness and familiarity and favourability are yeah. and how you have to build those at once. And then what drives consideration? Is that intention to purchase or intention to purchase in 12 months or intention to purchase because you asked me and I wanted to be nice Which and said I would? Which is too much detail, isn't it? You know. yeah, it's too much detail. Which just... I care about that as a marketeer, but they just need to know. Because I often work with companies where the biggest issue they have is that they're known for something, but the market's changed. And the reason they're not getting any traction is nobody knows they're in that market. (laughs) It's like saying, but we sell skiing goods. And you go, yeah, but everybody thinks you're an outdoor company. So they they don't know they can come and buy that. You just need to tell them. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com.
Let's talk about churn. You mentioned that in our exec summary at the, at the top. We talked about the, the importance of um, as soon as possible post-purchase, helping people feel good about what they've, what they've bought. Yeah. And then keeping the promise that's been made to the customer. Because I think in many cases, promises are not kept. I have a very personal example. I'm not sure I'm going to go into it on today's podcast. Yeah, I cancelled a subscription service yesterday because the promise made by that business is incongruous with the promise that made me buy it in the first place. Yeah. And it's a really small thing. Actually, I am going to talk about it. Go it's, on. It's the dog food company. Okay. They're, so they deliver cooked, frozen dog food once a month to your door. And... It's good quality, and they've done their branding really well. They draw you in and make you feel like a. They make you feel like your dog is one in a million and the most important animal to them. Yeah. Today we're recording a podcast. They wanted to deliver today. They sent an email out and only gave me an eight-hour window to say, "Can I change the delivery?" And I didn't see the email in time, so I didn't get to do it. And on the call center, when I got through to the call center to try and rearrange, they said, "I'm sorry, we can't rearrange." What you need to understand is this, they said. There are tens of thousands of packages going out that day and yours is just one. So we can't change your delivery. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you were like, oh, So I okay. said, oh God, you mean I'm not special to you? Oh, well, in that case, would you mind cancelling my service, please? And I cancelled it. It's exactly the same product I bought last month and I'm very happy with the product, but that promise to me, oh, the way they made it. me feel, they broke it, yeah. There's also this trickiness around marketing being something that I think is always seen as being sort of upfront. Yeah. It's so before the customer walks through the door because it's not at all. Like yeah. I, I actually think it's the relationship your business has with the customer. So if you don't act consistently and tell the same story consistently and deliver on that consistently all the way through the business, then that's exactly what happens. I'm not surprised. It's really tricky though, isn't it? Because... I don't think many businesses really understand how it feels to be a human being. And you see all these different bits of this business delivering to you and speaking to you, but they don't see it themselves. That's a very good point, actually. They don't because they're too close in, probably. They probably just see their functional bit. And the poor people who are on, it was one of those little chat things on online, they probably set some productivity targets so they yeah. can't go too deeply into any individual conversation. But also, will anyone know that that is the problem? Only if they listen to this podcast. Well, only if, well, of course they will be. I mean, I'll ping them and tell them to. That's what really troubles me is if you start a small business, like think of all those amazing businesses that are born out of entrepreneurial starts, yes. right? I mean, Britain is full of them. And at the beginning, that would have got back to the person who runs the business or is in yes. charge of it. And they would have gone, oh my goodness, right. Well, we can't do that. It's almost like as you get more successful, you get more deaf and you can't see. You're sort of working with a blindfold. I think that's why if you get a really great strategy that's really, really market oriented and everybody actually understands what the strategy is, yeah. right? You have got to make sure that delivers all the way through the business. That's why I end up doing brand work because I think brand can be neutral enough to walk through every single door in the business and say, look, this is what we're trying to deliver for the customer. So I want them to choose us. This is how our partners and our suppliers fit in. You know, can we look at how you take decisions and deliver against that? But if marketing doesn't do that job, who is going to do that? Yeah. Um, and even all the customer experience sort of roles, I mean, I know some amazing CX people. A lot of the anxiety about it seems to be that you end up sorting out things that are actually to do with troubleshooting when things go wrong. If you have a sort of accelerator model of 
you sign on the line or you purchase and then from that moment onwards about making sure you get the most out of what you've bought and that that is actually a program and that it's a program which delivers on why people came to buy from you in the first place and what drove that decision and is aware of what the barriers were that were holding them back they were like yeah but will it be okay for this or will I regret it for these reasons that you actually have that as a kind of corporate memory that people can go and check on then you should be able to help people get the most out of what they bought very quickly I think academically from everything I've read churn rates are basically the same for everybody in a category apart from the market leader because there's always a perception that if you're the leader therefore you're the best and there's nowhere better to go so actually the churn levels go down but I don't know that churn is the most important thing. I think often the most important thing is if you've got that customer in and they bought something, could there be more you could do for them? And actually, maybe the metric shouldn't be about whether they're going to churn if those levels are fairly standard. Maybe it should be about how much you've managed to grow the share of wallet, cross-sell and upsell. Do those customers know what their natural upgrade path is? Do they know what goes with what? Oh boy, I hope you're keeping up. I am, but only just. I told you this one was special. So what have we learned so far? Firstly, we need to change how marketing is taught in universities, in business schools, and in the workplace. Other professions have a more coherent approach to professional development standards and certification. So why don't we? We have chartered institutions too, of course. Maybe it's because they were born in a completely different era. So maybe it's time for the Chartered Institutes to collaborate or consolidate to present the industry with a more useful and joined-up approach to CPD. A common complaint from those who do enter marketing after studying it at university is that the coursework doesn't prepare them for real work. They learn strategy models at university, then get chucked into the deep end of tactical execution as career starters, of course. Behavioural psychology, statistics and social studies might be more useful than strategy models at that stage of our careers. Then at business school, of course, those strategy models are retaught. But few of us make it to business school because, as Rachel told us, business school is in no way accessible to ordinary people. It's hellishly expensive. Maybe that's why Marketing Week, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and others now offer mini MBA courses at a more affordable price. And God, are they popular? Marketing education needs to evolve and it needs to do it like yesterday both for practitioners, but also for non-marketing executives, because the effect of good marketing is to enhance both power and profit. So secondly, businesses should be considering marketing across the whole customer lifecycle, not just the end stages of customer acquisition. As Rachel told us at the top of the show, that means understanding that the purpose of our business and marketing within the business is to identify customer need and then solve it. Now, to do that effectively, you have to be in their mind at the time they want to buy. But that starts way before they're anywhere near your funnel. Put another way, it means you have to build yourself into their mental ability way before they're ready to buy so that when they are in a buying situation, you are the business that springs to mind. You have to be in their life when they're not ready to buy or you'll miss the boat when they are. But your work also doesn't stop when they've bought. You have a duty to your customer to fulfill the promise your brand made or they'll churn as quickly as they chose you. Finally, 
we've learned that marketing in a business is not a linear path. It's not a linear thing or a siloed department to work. Marketing needs to be a web of interconnected functions and activities, all of which must be aligned with the business's core strategy and its leader's vision. There are plenty of people without the word marketing in their job title in your company who do marketing every day. Embrace them, help them, equip them, and your work will be more effective. Rachel, customer success is such an important function, but it can be complex too. Upsells, cross-sells, those sorts of things, they're essential for any business that want to maximise customer value. Now, in the old days when individuals had buying responsibility, I feel that might have been easier. Where are you on this? I mean, it's a bit like you go into a Russell and Bromley to buy a pair of shoes and they still try to sell you the matching handbag. I mean, that's been going on since I went with my grandma like <laughs> yeah, yeah, 30 yeah. years ago, right? But it's that, it's if people who bought this, it's the Amazon thing, people who bought this yeah. went on to buy this as well, except that in B2C, your buyer's group includes all the people who influence their decision, like their children, <laughs> their partner, yeah. their friends, etc. And then in business... It's procurement and finance and the naysayers and the yaysayers and all that kind of stuff. So there's always a buyer's group. It's almost sort of shameful that you can sell people stuff and then not really care whether or not they get any use. Yeah. So uh, immediately technology companies spring to mind and some do it really well. Like the, your customer, the customer success person is genuinely vested in you making successful use of their software. And then there are those that do it really badly. And as soon as you've got a signature on the dotted line on your B2B SaaS contract, it's a 24-month contract, they couldn't give a monkey's. See ya, we got your money. Oh, can we sell you some more seats? Yeah. And that seems to be as much as, the, as much as they Or they care. go after you for seats that you haven't bought, but that you seem to have people logging in. I mean, it's sort of weird, isn't it? But it, there was a big shift that happened in tech, I would say, like sort of 2013, 2014, 2015, yeah. I, that I saw around that period, which is where it went from being buying licenses to, yeah. be, to, to almost pay as you go to subscription models. Yeah. And if you think about how you behave as a consumer, like... I if I can't find anything on Netflix or now or something like that for a period of a month or so, I basically decide that we don't need it anymore. By the time I get round to actually switching it off, my mind was made up quite a long time ago and actually there's no amount of money you can throw at me because it's not worth paying anything for some for when I there's nothing to watch. So I think the problem is, is that that thing of, you know, put it in the books and after 18 months, get back in touch with them, see whether the clients changed, you know, go and visit them in the car, you know, start pre-selling yeah. in the next sale kind of thing. That's gone. And I think the other problem is, is that we think that they're buying every month, but actually they're buying every day. They're deciding every day whether what they've got is useful or not. And you will find out too late. And by the time you find out, they've probably already lined up whatever they're going to replace it with, which might not actually be another similar product. Could be something completely, completely different. different. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I was, I was just thinking we need to talk about brand enemies, and um, as we're talking about some of these companies, their brand enemy is themselves. You know, it's Often, like, I know there are three companies who we're currently working with at the moment who I will cease working with when our contract ends, and I will never work with them again in my natural life. I don't care how good they get again. I don't care. They've made it so miserable to work with them, mm -hmm. and it's why maybe maybe that's why. I know Mark Ritson hates it when people do this, but you know it's, they, they added an extra three P's to the P, you know the P's, didn't they? People, process, and physical yeah. evidence. But that does allow you to take it beyond the transaction, actually, and and and, and extend yeah. the life of of how you're looking at the marketing mix. Well, and that's why your finance colleagues are really important because 
even though I think marketeers should set the price with finance, often they don't get to. I mean, in many companies that um, I can see, they don't even barely influence yeah, the price, right? Yeah, I reckon right? 15% of companies are taking marketing's input on pricing from the from the research I've yeah. done, which is not statistically robust. No, but it but is. It's, it's really low, right? Yeah, yeah. Every now and again, you'll be like, oh, you work on price? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, oh, exactly. my God. And you're like, oh, I haven't met somebody like that in months, right? That's really important because the price that those people are charged is part of the value exchange in their head, right? And also the margins that business expects are part of how well you can service that customer. How much time you have when things go wrong, how much you're able to go, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to give it to you for free this month. Let me press the button that gives you that bit of software for free this month. That's why all of these relationships have to really matter because otherwise you've got colleagues pulling levers for you that you can't control. The enemy is often, for businesses, the enemy is often themselves and their own kind of I don't know whether it's lack of care. I mean, I, that's what I woke up this morning thinking is like, you have to care to do, like to do the right thing. You have to actually care. And I think people do care, but I think when they start to scale, they get to a point, as you say, I mean, you, I think you hit on it earlier. It's like they're blindfolded and the, the further, you know, particularly if they're running a very hierarchical organization, they get so far from the customer. Yeah. They stop realizing what people care about or indeed stop caring because actually then for them, it's just about a process. Yeah. They're involved in a daily process that involves the things they need to do to run the business. And that, you know, wouldn't life be great if it wasn't for customers? You know, that's where that it's kind exactly of mentality that. comes from. Yeah. I think scaling is part of that problem that, you know, as you scale, you need to be developing processes and playbooks and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if they're not developed sympathetically to the brand and they're not using the right lexicon and they're not using the right yeah. drivers and all that kind of stuff, it's pretty easy to see how it can go completely wrong. But flip side is, we all know, it's particularly, you know, I spent a lot of my life in agency and, and you've been there, you know, the best relationships are the ones, aren't the ones where everything went right, right all the time. The best relationships are when something went catastrophically wrong, you turned it round, you put the effort in and you got things back on track because that's the stuff that builds trust and yeah. trust is what long-term relationships are built on. That's exactly it. You and I have talked a little already on air, but quite a lot off air about brand enemies. I think it's time to look into that concept in a little bit more detail. Rachel, talk to me about brand enemies. You were saying earlier that the brand enemy for most businesses is probably themselves, which I agree. I think the brand enemy for most um, buyers is inertia. Okay. Because if you're in a business and you are buying on behalf of that business and you are buying from a company that your boss bought from or your predecessor bought from or you brought from, unless they have monumentally screwed up, like monumentally and everybody's like, get rid of them, you know, your risk profile is probably quite risk averse because you're thinking to yourself, well, why would I take this out and replace it with something new? I'm going to have to persuade everybody, train everybody, you know, I'm, so much work. And then it's going to be on me as an individual, which is why I think buyers groups are interesting because often they're about making sure that you have um, almost like political support for your decision yep. more than it is about whether or not those people can help you get what you're buying right. But I think that inertia becomes the safest bet. I find it fascinating because whenever the world looks kind of bonkers, I think people um, actually, that that's what's kicking in, is that inertia yeah. born out of just wanting to be confident that you're going to be seen to be doing a good job, yeah. that you're not going to have made a mistake. It's what keeps people awake at night. Yeah. So if you're 
in the buyer's head when they come to market to shop, then you stand a chance at least of being compared against the inertia candidate, right? And then if you can help them buy very straightforwardly and you can make sure that they know that they've got the best thing for them and they can make the most of it, then that will give them confidence. And I think that people are even more loyal and vocal about how brilliant you are if they feel that they embarked on a journey where they didn't make the safest choice, they made the choice they felt was the right choice and yep. that it turned out to be brilliant and that that, cus- that, that that company really knows them and has listened to them and that they feel... And I actually think in consumer life, it's exactly the same as well. You repeat part... I mean, so many people say things like, I didn't realise I had, you know, 14 blue stripy jumpers, you know, because they always buy the same things and you buy the same things from the same companies. And so actually, if you say to yourself, I'm not going to buy from them this time, I'm going to buy this other thing with my money that will solve the problem in a different way then it's the same thing it's when you're you know you're you're the people that surrounded you turn around to you and go god that was a that was a good choice wasn't it it was a great find oh my goodness to give me the details or they turn and they go what on earth were you thinking right it's exactly the same and so that's why i think it is really human is that the motivator most people are risk averse change averse because they don't want to be kicked out of a job but they don't want to end up in political kind of damaging situations I think you have to understand that that it's I mean I met this um, guy from just eight years ago to conference and I this is this is this is dated now because you know we're so into the deliveries and the just eats and all that but I asked what's your brand enemy to him um, and he said to me it's the phone because essentially at that stage it was that you would call your local takeaway that you always called rather than go online and find what was available and buy through the platform. Yep. So again, that's exactly the same thing. So, uh, and then the other type of brand enemy I think exists is where you have an amount of money and you could spend it on different things. Okay. You could spend it on a holiday or you yep. could spend it on a new bike or you could spend it on root canal treatment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. situations where people are in where they're Fixed not money. actually comparing a hot holiday to a skiing holiday to a time on the beach. They're actually thinking about what that money could do for them. And I, I think that businesses at some level do that too. They think about, well, we could upgrade that MarTech, but we could actually just buy more reach and frequency to get hold of our audience. Which one should we do this year? I think actually we need more revenue, more pipeline. So we're going to go that way. So you know when people start their marketing with like who's the competition and how are they positioned in the market I think that's really useful but I want to know what drives those people into market and what's the alternative to buying from us it's not always from a competitor that's interesting as you were talking then I was I was picturing at least three bits of spend that we've got planned for next year and the, the pot of money as you say is exactly the same yeah and the the three competing projects are in completely different areas of the business it's a value judgment. It's not a category judgment. So there's a really good book called The uh, the Jolt Effect, which I'm going to link on the show notes, which deals with this indecision. It deals with the concept of the brand enemy. Um, I think if they called it the brand enemy, they may have sold more books because it's a, it's a much more catchy and memorable <laughs> title. But I would recommend that to anyone. Who, any, if you're out there now facing indecision and Boy, are we seeing indecision in our yeah. in our in our market as well. Start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. Here's here's a project. Oh no, we've just had the budget pulled, or the people get fired, or it's everywhere at the moment. So anyway, I'm going to link that on the show notes. Speaking of books, though, 
you're writing a book. Yes. How far have you got through it? So I'm writing it with a friend, uh, Sarah, who runs Brand Lateral. She's a okay. brilliant strategist and we've known each other for years. And I think we're about four chapters in. Okay. It's, so I'm not sure I can call it a book A yet. book, yeah. It's a, pro- has, a book project. It's a project. So I just wrote the diagnosis chapter, which is very long and very thorough. Tell me why you're writing it. It goes back to this problem of methodology and actual practical how to do it. I have spent 20 odd years trying to piece together what the methodology is end to end to actually diagnose what a business's situation is compared to what their strategy is and understand how to then define the strategy and then how to actually make that the reality. And I now have a methodology and I've used it repeatedly over the last few years and it's almost, it's agnostic. It doesn't seem to care what industry you're in, what customers you are with, what products you're selling, what services. It's just a methodology by which you get to an answer. So we're writing a book that writes that down. It's not a textbook, but it's not kind of lovely stories it's that like are, a workbook or something it's maybe. yeah it's it's really pragmatic and practical and has lots of at this stage it's really likely this will go wrong okay <laughs> so you're going to need three options and okay. they will be this and you need to think of it now because in three weeks time okay. you know so and and also when you have to go and talk to different people in the team about what so at this point you need to go and talk to the cfo and explain x y and z and line that oh, up God, for two months time fantastic. so it's almost like because because i I think that it's almost like a game of snakes and ladders and you have to really understand how you're going to get from the beginning to the end but you have to be able to react and take roots based on what you understand as you go through it rather than already having made your mind up so I want it to be something where you have it on your desk and the spine is broken and you've got your highlighter pen there's bits of post-it notes stuck into it and that you dip into it because you know that there's something there that you can just pull out and use really practically but also that you can walk into a job or walk into the planning cycle every year and go right well let's just do an update on the diagnosis to see where we are compared to where we want to be and get started that way so it's a pragmatist guide it's so cathartic to write i, bet it I is. can't I tell bet you it is. like there's moments where i'm writing stuff and i'm like oh god i just feel relieved having written that down <laughs> you know so it's the book i wish i'd had don't let it be so cathartic that you lose the anger Oh, no, I'm still crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's that time of the show where we now look a little bit to the future. Earlier in the show, we talked about, like, it would be really cool if we could do something about what we see as uh, the crisis, the looming crisis in marketing, and you are doing such a thing. You're writing a book to help people do the job. Um, If you're going to give advice before your book comes out to marketers out there now, something that's going to help them either improve in the daily work they do or help them regain some of the intellectual or strategic influence they have in their business, what would that advice be? So there's two things I would do. The first is before this season is over, I would hoover up from within the business every bit of research that you can find Anything that tells you how the buyers are behaving in the situations where they are either looking into who you are or trying to buy from you or trying to use what they bought. And I would sit down with a cup of coffee every morning until you have read all of it. And I would be looking for the clues. What drives them into market? 
What are the barriers to purchase? When do, what do they feel satisfied with after purchase? What are they unsatisfied with? I, you will have a, a rich source of information within the business without even commissioning anything. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is I would take a course. I would do one of the mini MBAs in marketing. Um, I would read the key texts by Byron and Jenny and Les, you know, the long and the short. I would uh, do that sort of refresher and get yourself back into what is a logical methodology to use that means that you are neutral to what the answers are and that you can really hear and understand what is working and what is not working and then start fixing things. Talk to me about AI and marketing. Everyone rabbits on about it all the time. We, we're all using tools. We've been using tools for years without knowing about it. It's not new, but it is in vogue and we're marketers, so we better talk about it. Yeah, so I'm just going to tell you one quick anecdote, which is that a few years ago, I was interviewing some CFOs and one of them said to me, look, can you just tell me that the solution that I have has got blockchain in it? It's cloud-based and has some AI and machine learning. And I was like, yes, it does. It has all of those things. He was like, oh, thank God. I just need to be able to tell the board we're doing something with those technologies. And I said, but what are they expecting? And he said, I have no idea, but I've already got it. It's it's like, it's part of your ERP. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Right. To me, that's it is if you're a customer, what you care about is that company knows you has sold you the right thing and is helping you get the most out of it. And that when you need them, you can get hold of a human being. I don't care what technology you use to make that happen. Yeah. (laughs) So I know that inside businesses, AI is like the hottest topic of the year. It's actually quite funny because you talk to any AI experts and they really desperately try not to roll their eyes because they're like, this has been going on for a while. Welcome. Welcome to the party, you know. But from a customer, from a buyer standpoint, it's just another way for that company to actually make sure that they understand you and that doesn't mean they're going to care about you so yeah. you still want to see all the normal things from a business which is that they've retained the knowledge and they're using it to help you and that it is there to serve there'll be something new next year metaverse that might come back metaverse will be interesting metaverse i think in world. medical settings yeah, yeah. i think that really could be interesting. it's too early in the adoption life cycle for metaverse and i think it's too clunky at the moment you know i don't know whether you've actually spent a, any time with one of those things on and the neck gets maybe it's my age the neck gets sore but i think look as the wearables become less obstructive and I think metaverse it's not done yet I don't think no I think all of these things just need to find their purpose because I don't think people buy technology no no they don't (laughs) I think they buy what it does exactly well there are people who buy technology but they're the visionaries right at one end and they're the guys that were playing with AI 25 years ago they're working out what it does pow Bloody hell, that was good. I'm going to get a transcript of that and link that off the show notes as well. That's my daily to-do list sorted. Uh, wow, thank you very much. Rachel, has been a joy. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, for coming to us. Yeah, thanks for a great chat. There you have it. The amazing Rachel Fairley. How good was that? Now, this has been longer than our average show because I really didn't want to edit any of the content out actually so i'm going to keep my summary short maybe i'm going to put a little bit more meat into the show notes than we do normally you can find those at unicorny.co.uk now there are only two things i feel i need to highlight before saying so long today firstly and this is a drum i bang quite often we need to talk about pricing now i know there are some businesses where product has been commoditized by things like comparison engines insurance is one that springs to mind and in instances like these pricing there is so dynamic it changes so often that it's not unusual to find a whole pricing department made up of like really specialist experts but even then 
Price is such an important part of the marketing mix, it seems really strange to me that marketers don't have any input whatsoever. You know, marketers, as their name suggests, should own deep understanding of the market. That includes competitor pricing, customer expectations, and of course the value they perceive in a product or service. And secondly, and kind of related, because price is such a direct reflection of a product or service's perceived value, and marketers are tasked with communicating value propositions to customers, like how can they be disconnected? You know, these days, no one expects pricing to be the sole preserve of marketing. But you really must involve marketing in the decision if you expect them to support price through communications. Apart from anything else, we often segment and target based on criteria like willingness or ability to pay. Knowledge of market segments, therefore, kind of informs differential pricing and that, well, that helps you maximize margin. Finally today, I want to talk a little bit about indecision and inertia as today's major brand enemy. Be under no illusion. In market conditions like these, no prizes are awarded for buying or acting early or taking risks. So whatever you're selling, whatever deal you are trying to make, inertia is your enemy. Now, I mentioned a book a little bit earlier called The Jolt Effect by Matthew Dixon and Ted McKenna. You should read it. It's so important. I'm going to try and get one of the authors onto this show. Now, the book really deals with inertia in sales, but now that we agree that we're not siloed, well, sales problem is our problem, and we can help solve it. Based on research, the authors identified that around half of all deals end up stalled in a no-decision limbo. That's because buyers are more scared of messing up than they are of missing out. Now, as marketers, if we understand each customer's fears... We can address them with our sales colleagues and increase our business's success rate. There's more on this subject to come on this podcast, but I think that's probably enough for today. Thank you for listening, and please be sure to tune in next week to meet the amazing Bill Harvey. He is one of the godfathers of practical AI, in my opinion, and one of the most interesting life stories I've heard. See ya! You've been listening to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. If you've enjoyed the show, why not hit follow? We'd love you to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it only takes a few seconds, but it means a lot to us. Or if it's easier for you, please recommend us to a friend or post on LinkedIn tagging at Unicorny. I'm your host, Dom Hawes. Nicola Fairley is the series producer. Laura Taylor McAllister is the production assistant. Pete Allen is the editor. And Ornella Weston and me, Dom Hawes, are your writers. Unicorny is a Selby Anderson production. Now, go win the future. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com.